Hello and welcome to Grubbing in the Filth with me, Tom Sharp. Someone you don't know is coming to meet you at the pub. All you know about them is the nickname they've been given. The nickname they can't shake off. Their nickname is Spider. What are your assumptions? Are they sneaky? Dangerous? Duplicitous? In my head, Spider would wear a leather jacket and have a ponytail. Spider might carry a knife. Spider might have a wallet chain. What's my point? My point is that animals are loaded with cultural resonance. When we think of spiders, we think of the ideas which we consider part and parcel of spideriness. And these ideas, the ideas of ferocity and sneakiness and untrustworthiness, are rooted in observed behaviours of spiders, but also in this self-fulfilling cycle of what spiders mean as animals within our culture. Spiders are creatures that frighten and upset a lot of people, but probably unreasonably so. Here's something though. Sat in the pub, waiting to meet Spider... I'd be quite excited because someone called Spider sounds quite cool. Spider wouldn't wear a fleece. Spider wouldn't wear brown shoes. Spider would have a certain enigmatic, dangerous cool to them. A lot of people don't like spiders. A lot of people don't like cockroaches. But there's a clear difference in the cultural heft of these two animals. They mean different things to us. Spiders, I think, have a certain edge. They're seen as silent hunters, famous for their ruthless behaviour, the way they wrap up the unlucky. The way they wrap up those unlucky enough to stray into their web. There's a sense of cunning to the spider. There is perhaps an elegance to spiders. Now, all of this from a point of view of natural history and science is not really relevant. And certainly not fair, certainly not fact. Because spiders are not the things that we think about them. Spiders are spiders. Doing their own thing, being spiders. To look at the cultural heft of the spider is an interesting thing but it's not science and it's not fair. Spiders are important. They have their role in the ecosystem. And spiders are varied and spiders are fascinating. But most importantly, they are spiders. Not there for us, unaware of their cultural cachet because they are animals and not symbols. This episode though is mindful of that cultural heft because today we're looking at what it means to live a life in which spiders play a significant role. We will look at what it means to surround yourself with spiders and to care for them in a world which so often would encourage their destruction. We'll be meeting someone who has welcomed a great many spiders into their home, who thrills in the company of spiders, who advocates for spiders and who is mindful of their welfare. After the musical break, we meet T. Francis, spider keeper and spider advocate, and view spiders not through the lens of hatred and fear, but through one of love and interest and care. We will look too at the way that these notions blur, the notions of spider as a wonderful thing and spider as a revolting thing. The way these notions blur and cross over and to some degree inform each other. I'm excited for you to hear from T. T speaks with such eloquence about spiders from both a scientific perspective and in the wider sense. Our relationship with spiders is complicated and T does an excellent job of talking through what it means to care for spiders both practically and emotionally. We also had a chance to talk about the cultural power dynamics at play when you are someone who involves yourself with our leggy mates. She offers a fantastic perspective informed by academic notions but not exclusively of academia per se. 
a compassionate, scientific and enthusiastic perspective on the world of spiders. Hiya T, how are you today? I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Very excited to talk about, about spiders and tarantulas and the the broader idea of kind of relationships with spiders and people that, that live with spiders and things, as opposed to just spiders as this abstract scientific idea. So I know that you've got quite an interesting relationship with spiders. We've talked about kind of how I refer to that role and maybe a spider person or a spider advocate. Could you give us kind of a sense of your your personal and your professional relationship with with invertebrates and with spiders specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So it's been a lifelong thing for me. When most people talk about having an imaginary friend when they were a child, I had an imaginary pet spider that lived in the bath whose name was Cyril. So this this is not a new thing to me. I'm 37 now and, you know, it's been constant throughout my entire life. But in terms of working with them um, in a hobby sense and in a professional sense, I've been hands-on involved with them for about 20 years now. Um, I have a history as a zookeeper. I've worked with exotic pet specialists. I have worked as, um, I suppose, a freelance spider advocate, which sounds really strange, but it was something I kind of fell into when I was living in America. A lot of people over there have a lot of fears about the kind of spiders that they encounter. And as such, I used to get a lot of calls from people who wanted help getting over their fears or wanted help, you know, um, understanding what it was that they were finding in their house, if it was dangerous or that kind of thing. And sometimes have me come and actually physically relocate stuff. So it was a strange line of work to be in for a while, especially as that it was a very unofficial thing, but that was, that was kind of something that happened for a bit. So, um, but no, in terms of keeping them, I got my first tarantula when I was about 18, I think 17, 18. Um, it was, it was a gift from my boyfriend at the time, um, much to my mum's horror, (laughs) but that kind of started me out on this, this whole journey. Um, yeah, I think in the last sort of couple of years, I've started to steer myself more towards the professional side of things and wanting to go off and get more uh, further my formal education in biology with a specific focus on spiders and other arachnids. Um, so it's become a lot more serious for me in the last couple of years, but it's always been something that I've been very passionate about. But one thing you mentioned there is this idea of living in America. And just, just thinking about that and thinking about this idea of our relationship with spiders, we, we both live in the UK now, I think. And in the UK, the spiders that we encounter on a daily basis aren't spiders that can really hurt people, are they? No, not at all. And in the States, there's much more of a chance that the spiders you meet might have some kind of, might have the capacity to hurt you. That's something that I'd like to dispel. (laughs) Okay, okay, go for it. Yeah. So basically... The the attitude towards spiders both here and in the USA is largely driven by the media and the perception mm. that people have of them based on what they absorb on a daily basis from sources such as the news, newspapers, the internet, TV films, all that kind of thing. Now, in the UK, there is absolutely nothing native to this country that can do you any damage at all. I think the most potent venom that anything in this country possesses can be likened to the venom in a bee sting. So it's not going to it's not going to kill you. It's not going to cause you to lose a limb. All of these over sensationalized news articles that you see in the papers about deadly false widows and all of this kind of stuff. It's absolute nonsense, baseless nonsense. Um, When it comes to America, there's this idea that, you know, there are more dangerous spiders around and that you might actually be in with a chance of coming up on something that can harm you seriously. There are only two types of spiders in North America that are capable of what's considered to be a medically significant bite. So you've got the widows. There's black widows, a couple of different species of black widows, um, the introduced brown widow and the brown recluse. 
Um, there are other recluse species that are present in America, but the brown recluse, Loxosceles reclusa, is the one that gets most people's attention because it's the one most people have heard of. Um, so basically, we're talking about spiders from two different families. Um, so we've got Loxosceles, as I mentioned, is the genus of widow, uh, sorry, of recluses, and then Latrodectus are the widows. So anything from the genus Latrodectus or the genus Loxosceles has potentially got a medically significant venom that could do some damage if they were to bite you, but it's not deadly. So they're not going to kill you unless you are already in a very bad way. Um, and I think, you know, the hype over them has been, again, massively over sensationalized by the media and this just general negative perception. On a slow news day, everyone loves to focus on something bad that, you know, might possibly be lurking in the shadows. And that's all it is, you know. So there's this there's this hysteria. I lived in Los Angeles and there's this hysteria even there about these brown recluses. Oh, you know, they're probably in my wardrobe that I you know, might be in my shoes. Brown recluses don't live in California. They have a very sort of specific range in North America that's nowhere near California. So there aren't any brown recluses in people's houses in California unless they've been introduced there somehow from a different state way off towards the east or, you know, the um, sort of mid-states area. So it's uh, it's a very unlikely thing that you're like that you're going to find um, in California. You will find widows; they're all over the place, but they don't stray from their webs, and they are much like the recluses, very timid, and are far more likely to flee or play dead than try to bite you. Um, I think the whole negative perception of spiders in terms of their bite and their tendency to bite people is another thing that's massively overplayed. They don't bite you unless they absolutely have to. It's their venom is a very valuable resource that they don't want to they don't want to waste. And on top of that, they aren't stupid. They know that if they bite you, they're drawing attention to themselves and the likelihood of them getting killed is far higher. They want to get away from you. A bite is absolute last resort self-defense. Sure. I'm, I'm I'm very happy to get shot down over that. My, my kind of <laughs> starting to my statement there because that's you know I I I like the fact that I don't like the fact that people are wrong about it. Obviously, we want people to be informed about spiders. We want people to have a good, healthy attitude towards them. I guess what I was going to ask is is do you think that attitudes between the states and the UK differ towards spiders? Um, no, actually, in my experience, it all seems to be very, very similar, eerily so, actually, when you consider that in this country, we don't have any medically significant spiders, whereas in the States, they do. Um, there just seems to be this general kind of negative attitude towards them that people don't even think about. You know, if you're not somebody who's particularly interested in spiders or, you know, you don't really have a particular appreciation for them, it's pretty much a given that you're going to be in one of two camps that is either completely indifferent or absolutely spider reverse, terrified or disgusted. Um, and the frequency at which I sort of encounter the latter, this sort of general kind of disgust at the mere mention of a spider is it's a lot. You know, there's a lot of people out there who the minute you say the word, they're just like, oh, gross. You know, it's like you didn't even think about that. You didn't even think about what I'm telling you, you know, what I've mentioned you don't have any kind of, it's a knee jerk reaction. And that, that kind of comes from conditioning by 
pop culture and the media. You know, from childhood, we are sort of trained to see them as something that represents something creepy or spooky or sinister or negative. You know, it's like, what's the first thing that you see in, you know, a haunted house? Uh, you know, if you go to like a Halloween thing or whatever, it's cobwebs everywhere, you know, spider webs, spider motifs, they're all over everything because they conjure this kind of creepy, um, I don't know, dark and dingy sort of uh, atmosphere, you know, and obviously from the point of view of somebody who understands them and who appreciates them, like there's a hell of a lot more to them than that, you know? So I think between the States and and the UK, like the attitudes are very, very similar. Given that there is, however, however, you know, however minor their kind of threat in the States is compared to us, given that there is a, a, a faint disparity given that there's no disparity in our attitude, it does seem to suggest this kind of all-encompassing worldwide or at least westernised maybe negativity towards them. As someone who advocates for spies and as someone who cares about them, is that frustrating to you or is it sort of water off a duck's back at this point? Oh, it's a bit of both, honestly. I mean, I, I expect it from people. It's one of those things that if somebody asks me what I do and I mention the spiders, I know pretty much that I'm going to get more often than not um, a kind of you know they're gonna look down their nose a bit they're gonna sort of sneer at me a bit as if to say oh god why what mm. you're one of those weirdos you know or they'll just be like oh okay that's a bit weird but cool you know whatever floats your boat like I'm sort of I'm I'm ready for it um so it's always positive it's always a positive experience for me when somebody says something like oh wow that's really cool you know which does happen um but yeah so to an extent it's water off a duck's back but on a sort of on a larger scale, I feel it's disappointing. You know, it, it's a it's a reminder that I'm up against a lot. Myself and other sort of spider people, spider advocates, arachnologists, um, people who work with them in whatever capacity, it's a reminder of what we're up against in terms of um, altering the public's perception. And that mission to alter the public's perception is not just from the point of view of wanting people to come around to the way of thinking that we have in that, you know, spiders are cool and awesome and great. It's It ties in with this whole idea of our, um, the world around us and, you know, what's happening to the world around us because of the human attitude towards things like insects and, you know, small things that people don't really spare a second thought for throughout the course of their day because, you know, we're seeing mass extinctions of invertebrates and other very, very important organisms that help keep our whole uh, ecosystem, our global ecosystem propped up like they are the foundation of an ecosystem. And without them, we're in real trouble. So trying to get people to care more about the world around them and to sort of think twice about doing something like smashing a spider that they found in their bedroom because they don't like it. You know, it that's one small step towards opening people's eyes to the sort of bigger issues and getting them to start thinking about the world around them in a slightly different and more positive and more proactive way. Do you see what I mean? I do. It's not a case of, you know, oh, I like I like the Beatles. You should like the Beatles, not the insect yeah. band. <laughs> it's a case of having a kind of, being well-informed, being educated and compassionate towards living things. It's a foundationally good thing yeah. as opposed to a, a preference. Let's, let's learn a bit about spiders then. So yeah. Let's, let's get the kind of the headline out the way. How many spiders do you live with? That number changes depending on how many egg sacs I've got, how many of them have hatched recently and how many of the mm. babies I've managed to move along. Um, I would say the kind of 
average figure throughout, say, 2020 as a base year was around about 350 to 400. At the most, we topped over 1,000. At the least, it was probably around about 120, 130. So quite a lot. <laughs> and, and these live in this this mythical spider room, as I yes, understand this. So the spider room. <laughs> <laughs> well, you take care of a, a great many spiders, and a great many of them are tarantulas. Mm. One thing I was listening to this interview you did, where you raised this interesting distinction that I wasn't aware of, that you can sort of, clearly tarantulas can be partitioned from the rest of the spiders in the sense of there's tarantulas, there's jumping spiders, there's orb weavers and whatnot. But the idea that tarantulas can be seen as distinct from other spiders, even to the extent that you can say there are true spiders and tarantulas. Yeah. Could you talk me through that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So time for another little crash course in taxonomy. <laughs> so um, spiders are... They belong to a class Arachnida, and in the class Arachnida, we have several um, orders, and these orders are things like Araneae, which is the spiders. We've got Scorpiones, which are the scorpions, obviously. We've got Solifugi, which are um, <laughs> commonly known as sun spiders or camel spiders. Um, we have Apiliones, which are the harvestmen, um, Pseudoscorpiones, Pseudoscorpions, loads of different things. They're all Arachnids, um, but they're all Arachnids in different ways. So mites and ticks and stuff are also in there. But focusing on the spiders, so Araneae, uh, the order Araneae is further split into suborders. The suborders are Mesothele and Epistothele. And I realize these long names are not going to be remembered by anybody, but it's just the kind of precursor introduction to get me to where I need to be to explain this whole true <laughs> spider thing. So the suborders are these these two. One of them is um, occupied at the moment by only one group of living spiders. The rest of it is kind of very, very sort of ancient, extinct spiders that don't exist anymore. Um, that's Mesothele. So Epistothele is where everything else is. Um, Epistothele is... Uh, as a suborder, further split into two infraorders, which is where we start to see the distinction between true spiders and tarantulas and their kin. So the infraorders that this is split into are Araneomorphy, which are the true spiders, and Mygalomorphy, which are tarantulas and several other types of, um, I suppose we'd call them quite primitive spiders, but not in the same way as the ones I was mentioning earlier that are you know, mostly extinct bar the one remaining group. So mygalomorphs are characterized by a few physical features, um, but the most noticeable one uh, is the orientation of their fangs. So it differs in that the uh, tarantulas and other mygalomorphs, their fangs are parallel to one another and downward facing. Um, whereas all other spiders, all the true spiders, they have a slightly different orientation with their fangs. They tend to cross over in more sort of like a I guess if you think of something like the pincher on the end of an earwig or, you know, crab claws or something like that, they kind of cross over one another and are more like a pincher kind of thing. Um, there are other things that set them apart as well, various physical characteristics, but overall, mygalomorphs tend to be quite heavy set, quite chunky, uh, quite big fangs, fairly poor eyesight, quite small clustered together little eyes on, you know, the top of their uh, carapace. And... Yeah, they, they just tend to be a bit bigger, a bit stockier, a bit chunkier. Not all of them. Some of them are very small, but they do still have that similar kind of build. And you can usually tell them apart once you start to get a bit of an eye for these things by looking at their faces and their fangs and what they look like. So true spiders are pretty much everything 
everything else. <laughs> so orb weavers, wolf spiders, huntsman spiders, jumping spiders, all of these kind of things, they're all true spiders. And there is a huge amount of diversity in the true spiders in terms of their appearance. Um, a lot of it is based on, you know, the kind of lifestyles that they lead. So obviously orb weavers, they're not necessarily built for speed. They don't do too well on the ground. They're built for living in a web. They're extremely fast when they're in their web. But if you put one on the floor, it's clumsy as anything. You, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't do too well. Whereas you look at a wolf spider, runs around like nobody's business. You chuck it in a web and it's, that's it, game over. <laughs> you can't do much. So, um yeah, there's there's a big distinction to be made in in terms of the true spiders and the megalomorphs, the the tarantulas and other things. So to give you an example of some of the other spiders that fall into the megalomorph category, things like the Sydney funnel web spiders, those big shiny black ones that you might have seen. Um, your big shiny ones in Australia, the ones that are known for being very venomous, they're mygalomorphs. Uh, trapdoor spiders, purse web spiders. We have one native species of purse web spider in the UK. It's our only mygalomorph. And if you're ever lucky enough to see one in person, it's it looks like a tiny tarantula, just not quite as hairy. They're very cute. So, yeah, there's, there's a few different spiders in that category, but there's most of them, I would say, are um, most of the diversity is seen in the true spiders. Yeah, I've, I've looked at the purse web. And, yeah, absolutely has that kind of... If you could say it, it's a bit tarantulary. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a fun, chunky spider. Yeah. So thinking about diversity in spiders and true spiders and tarantulas alike, you have in your in your spider room and your kind of spider collect I don't collection doesn't sound right, but in your That's what I call it. It's a spider collection. A co- oh, a collection. <laughs> in your spider collection. You have presumably true spiders as you'd call them and tarantulas. Yes. And I was wondering the diversity among among the spiders. We have a, a great deal of diversity. So you have these, the ones, the kind of the hunters that hunt, yeah, in, in a mobile along the ground kind of way. You have your mm-hmm. your funnel web type things. You have your orb webs. You have all this kind of different this this huge amount of diversity. I wondered how that affects the care you provide for them. How does it change your approach to taking care of these individual spiders? They, on the, on the whole. Um, they're very easy to take care of mostly. Um, but yes, the diversity does play into it in terms of their different requirements. So the very first distinction that you want to make, and this goes for tarantulas and true spiders alike, is what sort of environment it inhabits in the wild. So you can break that down into something as simple as, is it a terrestrial spider, i.e. does it live on the ground? Is it an arboreal spider? Does it live up in the trees? Is it a fossorial spider? Does it burrow into the ground? Does it need a lot of dirt to burrow into? These are the first things that you're going to think about in terms of what sort of environment to provide. So if you're looking at true spiders, for example, I do keep some orb weavers. So obviously they need a lot of aerial space to be able to spin a big round web that they'll spend pretty much all of their life in um waiting for prey to fly into it that they can catch and deal with um so that doesn't really require a whole lot in terms of ground furniture or any really it can be something as simple as a big wooden frame (laughs) that you'll just pop it onto and wait for it to build a web on i keep mine in big net enclosures because um we have a lot of the people in the uk and in america alike will know about these in fact everywhere in the world i imagine will know about these um the what we call cellar spiders um some people call them daddy long legs they are all over my house they're very spindly they look unbelievably flimsy and weak but they are incredibly capable spider murderers 
they're spiders themselves, obviously, but they have absolutely no problem taking down other spiders. So I don't keep any of my orb weavers um, in, say, like a window like I could, you know, if I had a window free of the cellar spiders, I could let one live there quite happily. But I know that if one were to accidentally stumble into the domain of a cellar spider, it'd be game over. So I have to keep them in something enclosed for that reason. I think it'd be worth having a quick look at that term, dazzy long legs, which just came up. This is a term that gets applied to a number of very different animals. In this instance, daddy long legs, as in daddy long legs spider, is being applied to an animal called a cellar spider. That is, a spider belonging to the family Falcidae. These are spiders with incredibly slender frames, which can be commonly seen in a lot of homes. You'll see them walking with what looks like an almost cautious gait, picking their way along on their very long, wire-thin legs, with dark, slightly nodulous joints. They have a fascinating behaviour, whereby certain species can vibrate themselves in their webs when disturbed becoming a blur which is presumably hard for a predator to target. These are the animals which are being talked about when people say that daddy long legs have the most venomous bite of any animals. But they don't, and they can't hurt you. Now the difficulty arises in the fact that that name daddy long legs also gets applied to other animals. That is, I suppose, the curse of the common name. For me, the daddy long legs spider was not a common sight, growing up in the north of England where the spider occurs less commonly. Growing up, what I called a daddy long legs was a big, dangle-legged fly called a crane fly, a member of the fly family Dipulidae. These were the daddy long legs of childhood for tea as well, something we mentioned in a bit of chat too scintillating to include in this episode. Instead, you get me, here, doing an interjection. Crane flies are those big, long-legged flies that you get in your house and they bump about and cause a stir. They have an elongate body shape and exceptionally long legs that trail about when they fly, hence the nickname Daddy Long Legs. They're larvae you might know as leather jackets. For some, harvestmen are called daddy long legs. These are arachnids, but not spiders. They form an order called the Apiliones. They do bear a resemblance to the cellar spider, being eight-legged creatures with exceptionally slender legs, but from a different group entirely. Their bodies tend towards appearing pretty much oval, owing to the way that their body sections, the cephalothorax and the abdomen, have a very broad connection. This is in contrast to a spider, which has a pretty clear demarcation between the cephalothorax, the foremost section of the body, bearing the eyes and legs and the fangs, and the abdomen, the bulkier rear section. On a spider, these sections are clearly distinct, not so on a harvestman. Harvestmen are fab. Being awfully spider-like, but not spiders, gives them a real underdog vibe for me. They're not venomous, and they tend to be omnivores. I think they're a great laugh. Anyway, we're not talking about them. That's another episode, I hope. Back to the spiders. But yeah, with things like tarantulas, once you've figured out what kind of environment it needs, you know, does it want uh, a terrestrial, fossorial or arboreal enclosure, then you start to set it up accordingly. So if it's arboreal, you'll give it things to climb up, things to hide behind, cork bark, flats that you'll lean up, lots of plant cover, that kind of thing. Um, Fossorials, you'll give them something with lots of deep substrate that they can dig down into. And terrestrials, you'll give them a lot of ground space so they can wander around a few hides for them to make their retreat under plants, water bowl, that kind of thing. Um, But yeah, depending on what it is you're, you know, what spider it is you're talking about, there are a lot of species specific um, things to take into consideration in terms of the other elements of their enclosure. So humidity and temperature and all that kind of thing. Depending on how complex we're talking, there are certain types of spider that will only hunt if they're given something that they can camouflage themselves on that's pretty close to their uh, to their own sort of coloration. So flower spiders, for example, flower crab spiders. 
you want to give them some flowers, some sort of synthetic flowers that are closely matched to their own coloration so that they can feel that they've camouflaged themselves adequately to feel confident hunting prey. They're not going to hunt on the ground. So there are lots of things to take into consideration when it comes to the care of specific types of spiders. Yeah. You mentioned this kind of idea, you don't want cross-contamination there. Are there any spiders that do cohabit either kind of on a social level or just they can be around each other? Yes, there are actually. And as a keeper of spiders in captivity, I've noticed some interesting behaviours with certain types of spider that wouldn't usually be considered communal and are not truly communal, but in the right environment and given the right sort of um, enclosure, will actually cohabit with one another quite happily up to a point. Um, There are certain species that I've kept that are known to be um, social to an extent. We won't call them truly social. We'll call them maybe pre-social. So there's a type of spitting spider that I've kept that I currently have. Um, I can quite easily keep those in a commune of several individuals. They'll be just fine. Um, There's a species of lynx spider from Madagascar that I've kept communally quite successfully. Um, There are conditions that you kind of have to meet it's not wise to take some of those lynx spiders that have lived on their own before and suddenly put them all in together it's better to raise them as like a family unit so if you have a male and a female that you introduce and the female lays an egg sac in that enclosure and you know that the enclosure is spiderling proof then you could perhaps allow those youngsters to grow up in there and they will all live quite happily as a group and they won't tend to predate on each other too much. You will find cannibalism sometimes, but with the amount of babies that come out of an egg sac, you're not likely to notice much of a dip in the numbers just from that, as long as you provide plenty of other food. Um, There are types of jumping spider that I have managed to keep communally from spiderlings up until sort of sub-adults, at which point I split them up. Jumping spiders you don't often think of as being communal and I would not recommend keeping them communally at all. And I cannot stress that enough. If you're interested in keeping jumping spiders, don't try this. Don't put them together. This is experiments that have been done by myself and other people who've bred species from the genus Hylus. Um, Hylus diardi and Hylus uh, walkeneri, certainly I've seen in my own spider room and in other people's collections, success with raising groups of babies together. So sack mates that have hatched out, siblings that have hatched out together, raising them as groups in a big enough enclosure with plentiful plentiful other food. You can get them to stay together quite happily for a while. And then when they start to reach adult size, that's when you're going to split them up and keep them individually. So it can be done. There are also species of tarantulas that are known for living together uh, quite successfully. So there's the Socotra Island blue baboon, which the Latin name is, sorry, scientific name is Monocentropus balfouri. That's known in the hobby as being one that you can quite successfully keep as a commune of several individuals. And it's a very beautiful species as well, not only in the way the spider itself looks, but they're also very prolific webbers. So when you've got a large group of them living together in an enclosure, they will shroud the whole thing in web and there'll be web tunnels throughout the whole thing. And it's just it's really cool to look at. There are a couple of um, dwarf tarantula species that I've kept together. So Heterotheli gabonensis and Heterotheli, we'll call it X villicella. There's some speculation about its name at the moment. It's, it's what's called a nomen dubium at the moment in that its name has come into some questions. So, But it is a different species to the Gabonensis and they will live together quite happily as a commune too. So yes, it can be done. Um, as far as interspecies keeping, no, 
that's not something that's going to work. A spider, if it sees something that looks like prey, doesn't care how many legs it's got. If it's a spider, it'll eat it. So, you know, that that shouldn't be done. You shouldn't keep different species together. So, Nate, you've said that that I found really interesting that you you mentioned when you were talking earlier that, you know, you use the expression spiders aren't stupid. And just Mm. now (laughs) you mentioned you sort of talking about their preferences and things that oh, they might cope with it if they grew up that way and sort of mm. talking in these sort of terms. And I think a lot of people, kind of the people we talked about earlier who hate spiders and they're dismissive of spiders and they don't like them, might tend towards seeing them as these sort of, they're robots. They have, they're <laughs> unfeeling creatures. They they have no, they have no consciousness. I mean, these are contentious words, but they have no kind of, they exist to, to spider about and they don't how, how to phrase it like a they don't have any kind of meaningful relationship with the world around them yeah do you feel like spiders do have a kind of again these these are words that are hard to use personality or consciousness do you perceive this kind of or, or to what degree do you perceive awareness or preference or personality in spiders it's a little bit of both as far as i'm concerned so the uh, the words that i would attribute to spiders that would sort of remove them from this kind of robotic sort of way of being is intelligence um how intelligent are spiders what sort of intelligence do they possess and how do they use it these are all questions that are still being answered they're still being investigated um so there are people out there who are studying spider behavior and the way they interact with certain things in their environment and certain stimuli that would suggest that there is a certain amount of measurable intelligence in certain types of spiders. And the ones that are known for this uh, kind of thing are particularly are the jumping spiders. Um, you can see something going on there. If you observe a jumping spider, if it sees you, it sees you. It turns to you and it stares at you and it's looking at you and it is taking in what you are. And you can see that there is something going on there that is not just a case of robotic, you know, oh, that moved. Is it prey or is it a threat? Do I grab it or do I run kind of response, you know? So the way I see it and what I tend to observe in my collection here is it is quite robotic. There is a certain amount of kind of automatic response to things. Spiders do not have the same kind of uh, relationship with their surroundings as mammals and, you know, certainly people, obviously, you know, they don't, they're not fond of anything in particular. They don't bond with things. They don't, you know, the, I'm going to say they don't play, but there is a certain amount of behavior that could maybe be perceived as being play that's still being investigated but they're not they're not curious about their environment in the same way that something like a puppy or a kitten is you know they have a certain amount of instinctive well most of what they do is instinctive it's just kind of ingrained into them how to interact with their surroundings but they do tend to become conditioned to certain things just through experience you know so when you look at orb weavers or other type of web weavers if they build their web somewhere and it gets disturbed, Something, someone walks through it, for example, they may build it again, and then it gets walked through again because they've built it in a doorway or something. There's only so many times that spider's going to build that web in the same place. At some point, it's going to realize, hang on a minute, nope, I've had this web destroyed X amount of times now, maybe I should put it somewhere else. So that's obviously weighing up what's happening in its surroundings and you know how the world is interacting with it and vice versa. So there's a certain amount of um, assessment done by spiders of the envi- of the environment that they live in um and you know their behavior is is kind of um the response to that environment 
So it's a certain amount of intelligence and a certain amount of instinct. It's a certain amount of robotic behavior. Um, there's, it's a little of column A, a little of column B, but I think for the most part, they are pretty sort of, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it without overusing the word robotic, but that kind of is the best way of describing it. You know, they're just kind of, it's inbuilt in them to behave in a certain way. But to go back to the example that you picked up on of, you know, spiders that are raised together in like a sibling group versus those that are introduced to one another, that's more of a conditioning thing. You know, if from the point that they leave an egg sac, they're used to the presence of several of their siblings around them and they get used to the movements of their siblings and they don't really respond to it the same way they would prey, then those other creatures that they're living with don't immediately set off the predator-prey response. Whereas if you chuck a fly in there and it's moving in a completely different way, that'll set them off, if that makes sense. So if you've got one that's lived by itself since it was a spiderling and hasn't had that kind of conditioning of having other spiders like it around it all the time, to put one in with it, it doesn't really differentiate between prey and sibling, you know? So that's kind of, I think it's more of a conditioning thing there. Talking about keeping spiders, one thing I wondered about, because you know, I, I don't keep spiders, I, I dare say I'm not going to keep spiders. And part of the reason isn't out of a dislike of the creature. I, I like spiders and I think they're cool. But something I could never get over, I don't think, um, is presumably you have to feed spiders live food in the same yeah. way, you know, that's just, that's, that's, that's what they are. And by no means suggesting that you can find a workaround for that, or that there's something immoral about spiders being spiders. But I just think for me personally, that's not something that I would feel comfortable with. I don't, I don't know. It it's it doesn't sit well with me personally, which is again by no means a, a moral judgment on anyone or anything. No, absolutely. But I wonder. Understandable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I kind of wondered what your relationship was like with that process and how, like, if it had changed at all. I've got two words for you, and those words are cognitive dissonance. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I. I love all living creatures. There's not a single creature on this earth with the exception of perhaps bedbugs that I don't like or love in some way. Um, and even them, I can I can understand that they've got an ecological niche to fill. They just just don't fill it near me, please. So You're not gonna start a collection. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna start a collection. Living in America and dealing with them on more than one occasion is quite right, enough for yeah, me, thank yeah. you. But anyway, I I digress. So um, the animals that I keep, yes, they feed on live prey, um, crickets, locusts, roaches, um, various different types of uh, larvae, so beetle larvae, moth larvae, that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, I don't like the fact that I'm sending these creatures to their to their doom when I put them in with my spiders, but at the same time, it's nature it's what they eat. It's what happens. These animals get eaten in the wild. Spiders get eaten in the wild. I have lost spiders to the food that I've given them. You know, it's, it, it's not something that's happened to me often. And it's, you know, it was horrible when it did, but it does happen occasionally. And the circumstances under which, under which that happens, you know, are not always something that we can control. So, you know, it's one of those things, it's, it's a natural balance, you know, that other animals, that animals eat other animals. And if you are going to look after animals that require prey, then it's just part and parcel of what you do. My personal relationship with it is that I buy in pre-packed tubs of live food and I have a couple of roach cultures that I, I have that I breed myself for the purpose of feeding my spiders. 
I have a harder time with the roaches because I love my roaches. I, I, I raise roaches for the pleasure of it as well as just to feed to my spiders. So I have a harder time feeding them. But the crickets, you know, it's made a bit easier by the fact that they're annoying. They stink. <laughs> you know, they're just like, they're, they're not the most pleasant creatures in the world to have around. And yeah, I know, you know, like I said, I love them all, but cognitive dissonance is definitely my friend in this, in this particular respect. There is definitely a divide. It's the same with snakes. You know, it's like I keep snakes. It's illegal in the UK to feed live food to snakes, which I absolutely 100% support. And I wish to God that would be the case elsewhere as well. So I buy frozen rodents. But I keep, I don't have any at the moment, but I have a long history of keeping rats. So on one hand, I've got a big cage full of these really happy, big, fat, spoiled rats that I have sitting on my shoulders most of the day, you know. And then in the other hand, you know, I've got a frozen rat that I've just taken out of the freezer and defrosting and I'm about to hand to my snake, you know. But there's a big disconnect there, you know. So I don't look at that frozen rat and get sad about it. I would if I thought about it for too long. Sure. But it's just yeah. like... It's the same as with humans who will drive past a field of cows and be like, oh, how cute, and go home and eat a steak. You know, cognitive dissonance is a big part of what we do in just about every element of modern society. You know, hypocrisy is everywhere. It's in the clothes that we wear. It's in the food that we eat. It's in the way we interact with our surroundings. And this is just a different, this is just a different flavor of that same, same thing, really. So it's not something that I'm happy about, but it's necessary. Sure. Uh, no, I think I think it's an interesting conversation. Whether do you find that because we're going to talk about kind of the spider keeping community or the members of the hobby? I don't know how you describe it, but mm. do you find that there is because sometimes when you're sort of knocking about on YouTube or whatnot, you kind of see people have uploaded videos of snakes catching and killing things, and is mm. is there any sense that there are people that kind of that relish the process yeah, of? There are, yeah. and I hate it. Yeah, this is one of my this is this is one of the fundamental reasons why I don't like to involve myself too much in the hobby aspect of spider keeping right. and try to keep it more I don't know, I prefer to approach these things from a sort of scientific and like research perspective. Of course, I get a lot of enjoyment out of keeping my spiders and looking after them and observing them. But for me, it's a learning thing. And it's about understanding spider behavior and anatomy and, you know, reproduction and all of this kind of stuff, behavioral ecology, all of that kind of stuff. Like, that's what I'm interested in understanding. But you've got a whole contingent of people out there who keep them for other reasons. You know, some people keep them for the same reasons they keep dogs, cats and hamsters. They think they're cute and they like to have them around as a pet. And I, I respect that. Um, there's a certain element of that for me as well. But then you've got other people out there who keep them because there's some sort of unspoken idea that, you know, gets you kind of cool points for having pets that other people are scared yeah. of or you know um i've seen it happen because i've i've worked a lot in the past with other exotic animals i've seen horrendous injuries to snakes that have been inflicted by live rodents that people have fed them now as i mentioned earlier it's illegal to do that in this country but people will do it anyway because they want to show off to their mates they're like oh check this out if i put this live rat in with my python look what happens doesn't always go the way they expect when you've got two animals that would otherwise be out in the wild and able to get away from one another if something goes wrong if a snake strikes at something and doesn't get it first time that something then has to fight back if it can't run away and there's a hell of a lot more damage that a live rodent can do to a snake than the other way around if they're in a fight situation 
So right. when I mentioned a minute ago about spiders that I've lost to the prey that I put in with them, that happened relatively recently. I had a female fishing spider who just laid a large egg sac and was looking very skinny having done so. She didn't eat while she was carrying the sack around with her. Once it hatched, I fed her a cricket, um, but I noticed that she wasn't going after it. And then the cricket disappeared. So her enclosure is very sort of laid out. It's a very complex layout. It's not something that I can easily take apart. So I did my best to go through the enclosure and see if I could find the cricket. And I assumed, you know, can't see it, can't hear it. That Usually they chirp the adult crickets when I put them in, you know. Couldn't see any evidence of it anywhere. Um, so I just assumed, okay, well, if it comes out, I'm sure she'll dispatch it. And then a few days later, she's in there. She's fine. And I still can't see this cricket. So I assume, okay, it must have died. And then about two, three days later, I find her dead on the ground and she's been nibbled on by something. So the cricket has actually killed her or found her on the ground and and it's gone the wrong way. It's gone the other way. You know, the cricket has ended up feeding on the spider. Heartbreaking for me. I, I didn't realize it was still in there, you know, but when you've got an enclosure like that, where there are lots of places for something to hide and you've got a spider that's weakened by, you know, old age or having just laid a whole load of eggs and not eaten for a while, all that kind of thing. These are the kind of conditions that can lead to something like that happening. And it's something that you just kind of have to steal yourself for. But there are people out there certainly who have these animals solely because they want to show off on the internet or show off to their mates or, you know, and you see them doing all kinds of things that as a spider keeper, particularly, I would say, please don't do that. You know, feeding them prey items that are way too big um, or you know, overfeeding them. You know, you've got a spider with a massive, great big fat abdomen and now they're handing it another roach that it clearly doesn't need at the moment. You know, um, that's the kind of situation that's likely to result in a roach or a cricket or a locust running off and hiding somewhere and not being found and then potentially damaging the spider if it molts or something you know if a cricket finds a spider while it's molting it's going to it's it's going to chew on it and that's going to die you know so you see people handling them as well you know getting out a really big fat tarantula and having it on their hands and showing it to their mates and showing off and whatever it's like if that spider falls and ruptures its abdomen is game over there's nothing you can do about that if it's a bad rupture that spider will die on the spot you know and it's just like these are the things that i see people doing a lot that i wish they wouldn't do because it's dangerous to the spider it's unnecessary and it just shows a lack of understanding and a lack of respect for the animal that they're keeping and a desire to get a reaction from people you know that desire to get a reaction from people should not override the well-being of the animal. You know, if you want to get a reaction from somebody, you can get that just by showing them that you've got a spider in an enclosure a lot of the time. But I would question, you know, why you why keep live animals if that's all you want from them? Find something else that's going to get a reaction from people. Take up extreme sports. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, it feels it feels like it, um, you know, we, we've you've got people who are ignorant of spiders in the sense that they don't know much about them. They don't like them. And then mm. it, this feels like a kind of flip side to that coin where you've got people who are, who involve themselves with spiders, but aren't mindful of the spider's welfare or, or are ignorant to, you know, who are using it kind of as an ego trip or as an accessory. It is. It, it's an accessory. It's exactly what it is. I used to work at a reptile shop and we had a guy who used to come in quite often who um, was looking for expensive snake morphs. And, you know, he'd come in and be 
perfectly happy flashing around the fact that he's willing to drop two grand on a snake here and now if he can take it away with him on the spot you know and it's just like he's just shown up in a brand spanking new shiny Range Rover and he's dripping in you know designer labels and stuff it's like no judgment from me at all I like a designer label I like a nice car but I I don't feel the need to go and flash it around and I don't feel the need to go into somewhere like a reptile shop and make it abundantly clear that you know, he hasn't asked any questions about the health of the snake. He hasn't asked any questions about what it needs to live in. He hasn't asked any questions about the care of the snake. All he wants is the most expensive, most unusual, um, most sought after snake so that he can show off about it. And it's people like that that I encountered in America who were the ones who were who were chucking live food in with their snakes and then wondering why things had gone horribly wrong because they were too busy saying, oh, bro, check this out. Look what happens if I do this, rather than responsibly feeding their snake, taking the precautions and making sure that they're there to intervene if things do go awry, you know? So I've seen a lot of people get into this kind of hobby, um, spiders, other invertebrates, reptiles, other exotic animals, exotic mammals, all sorts. I've seen people get into it for entirely the wrong reasons. And I've also seen a lot of people who are into it for what I would consider to be the right reasons, making stupid mistakes that they really, you would feel that people who've been doing it as long as they have should know better. And it always seems to be that these mistakes happen when they're setting up a photo for likes on Instagram. So you've got somebody who's got a tarantula out and they want to take a picture of it on their hand. And then they post that, oh my God, well, I made a really stupid rookie error last night. I got my spider out to handle it and it fell off my hand and now it's dying. You know, it's like you can take a photo of the spider in its enclosure and pose absolutely no risk to the spider in doing so and still get your likes on Instagram. You don't need to put the animals at unnecessary risk for that, but people continue to do it. So... Yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a pet peeve. <laughs> yeah, a sore spot. I can t I can tell, yeah. but, but rightly so. Well, I wanted to, because I wanted to ask you a bit about the kind of the hobby. You do seem to have a kind of a slight detachment from it in some respects, and um, mm. for for understandable reasons. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was kind of spiders can almost be seen as you know alongside snakes and scorpions and w wolves, things you don't keep. Yeah, they have a certain countercultural aspect you know that you, you see them they have associations with with rock and roll and heavy metal and i can imagine that a lot of people come to come to spiders out of a kind of countercultural yeah as no i think that can that can bring them there is that something that you that you do see i don't know if you've seen what i look like <laughs> but well, i this, um... this was it so i was gonna i was gonna mention because i've seen like like rob halford stuff mentioned on your twitter <laughs> yeah. and, and i'm thinking right Fantastic. Yeah. Bit of metal, bit of spiders. But I guess I was wondering, do people come to spiders from counterculture? Do spiders lead people to counterculture? I think it's more of the former, honestly. I right. think, you know, from my point of view, as a teenager, I was always very into the darker things and the more weird and wonderful things. And it just seemed to be something that I gravitated towards. And yeah, I mean, you know, as a teenager, undoubtedly keeping snakes and spiders and all that kind of stuff went hand in hand with that. There was a pre-existing interest, as I mentioned right at the beginning of this, you know, my interest in spiders, my interest, was that me? Oh my God, I forgot to cancel that after we... <laughs> <It's totally laughs> right. right, so... Leave it in, be a bit of colour. <laughs> 
as I mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, this is a lifelong thing for me. I've always had an interest in spiders and all other animals, you know, reptiles and amphibians and all kinds of other creepy crawlies and less kind of warm and fluffy, lovely animals. I love them all and I always have but certainly there was an element of it when I was trying to be a cool kid who was like oh well you know I could get a hamster or I could get a rat you know or you know I I could get some goldfish or I could get a spider you know and it's like there was definitely a certain amount of that as a teenager who was myself trying to rack up cool points quite with who I have no idea because you know I didn't really (laughs) hang around with a lot of people it was all just me so yeah it's always been um something that i've seen definitely a very strong trend you know the people that i know who keep spiders and reptiles and amphibians and other you know animals of that exotic animals lesser kept animals there does definitely seem to be a large percentage of those people who are into the same kind of music i am so a lot of rock and metal a lot of people who are just as tattooed as i am um you know got as many piercings as i have you know ride motorbikes you know all that kind of stuff there's definitely definitely a theme there. And I think it is just because, as I mentioned, you know, when we were talking about the media influence, you know, it's another thing that spiders, snakes, all that kind of stuff have always been viewed kind of negatively by the mainstream. You know, there's always this kind of, they're a bit dangerous, they're a bit spooky, they're a bit scary. They're the kind of underdog of the animal kingdom in terms of how much people like them, you know? And I think there's a certain amount of subconscious kind of resonance there with people as well who are of a subculture, uh, subcultural kind of inclination. So whether it's their taste in music, their appearance, um, you know, the their interest in whatever it is, like I said, bikes or tattoos or, you know, weird and wonderful artwork, collecting skulls, all that kind of stuff. And these things all, tend to overlap, right? Yeah, exactly. They all tend to go hand in hand because, I mean, I think a lot of it as well is an aesthetic thing you know it's like when you were talking about people who are into like rock and metal there's always a lot of leather and spikes and black and you know ripped up denim and all that kind of thing there's definitely an aesthetic theme and undoubtedly things like snakes and spiders and wolves and rats and all that kind of stuff they're involved in that you know they're very sort of present in that kind of aesthetic so I feel there's a draw there as well so yeah there's definitely a trend I think amongst people who keep these things for that reason but then you've got the other contingent which I feel that you know I kind of I slot into this demographic equally and that is the nerds you know the people who are and I say that with all the love in the world for anyone listening to this when I say nerds it is a hundred percent a compliment it is absolutely not an insult but you know your science people the researchers the ecologists the taxonomists the all of the scientists and the you know the kind of um naturalists and just general kind of enthusiasts for nature and for the world around them those kind of people they don't necessarily ride around on motorbikes and adorn themselves in spikes and cover themselves in tattoos but they might keep spiders or they might observe spiders because they have a keen interest in them so you kind of got the whole the whole scene is kind of split down the middle between those two demographics and so am i (laughs) so yeah both both things can exist simultaneously i mean do you think that this kind of the fact that people come to spiders from a place of it's a, for want of a better term, alternative animal. Is that a problem? Are they the people who want to use spiders as an accessory? Or is it no. the case that people are coming to it <laughs> and they are compassionate people and they are wanting to provide care and they are excited and interested in spiders? I think that characteristic and that kind of, that that sort of thing is not dictated by, you know, what kind of, 
lifestyle you lead you've got idiots in every single demographic you know it's like you've got idiot metalheads you've got super intelligent metalheads you've got people who you wouldn't necessarily think for a second to look at them that they've got a room full of spiders who are you know unbelievably interested and keen or whatever and then you've got exactly the same people who are just as dumb and doing stupid things it's just that's down to the individual and i don't think that you can necessarily uh, it would be unfair to assume that because somebody subscribes to a certain lifestyle that they're incapable of providing proper care or not interested in providing proper care for an animal just because the initial draw was perhaps something that ties in with their whole kind of way of being or something aesthetic or whatever some of the people that i know who keep spiders who take the absolute best care of them got into it completely by accident or got into it for reasons that you know the spiders didn't necessarily come first it was something else you know it doesn't necessarily mean that just because they've come into it for what some people might consider to be the wrong reason you know it it doesn't mean that they're not going to do a good job of it. You know, there's some people. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's some people I know who were massively arachnophobic, like hugely arachnophobic to the point where they break out in a cold sweat, starts crying and have to leave the room at the slightest hint of a spider who then decided, no, I've had enough of this. I can't live like this anymore. I'm going to change this, have gone out, done the work on their fear. And now they like me have a room full of spiders, you know, they're the kind of people who you would assume might have smashed a spider, you know, a few months previously because they were scared of it. Now, all of a sudden, they're out here providing like five star care for a whole horde of them, you know. So I've seen, you know, my time working at the zoo, my time working in reptile shops and, you know, the various other things that I've done. I've seen people from all different walks of life getting involved and getting interested in and starting to keep spiders and doing just as good a job as the next guy. And by that same token, I've seen people who've been involved in the hobby for years, who people know, you know, in the local scene as being somebody who's heavily into it, neglecting their animals and taking absolutely terrible care of them. Because whatever the reason is, you know, sometimes people get so caught up with, you know, being the reptile guy or whatever, if they start going through a bad patch in their life where they're just not capable of taking care of their animals properly rather than admit to that and say, I need some help. Can somebody take these animals from me for a while? Or I need to thin out my collection. Their pride says, no, got to hang on to them. And then the animals suffer as a result, you know? So it's like that ability to take care of the animals properly is not, it doesn't tie in with what kind of person you are in terms of your interests or how you got into it. It's down to your, your level of responsibility and, your sort of dedication to what it is you're doing you know it's probably worth pointing out that the way i've been speaking and maybe the kind of the things we've been highlighting it, it sounds like i'm i'm coming for the spider community it's it's worth pointing out <laughs> that like a lot of people who aren't into inverted commas alternative pets a lot of people that are into dogs or hamsters or rabbits who, who come to these animals because they're in inverted commas normal pets Equally, these people are not doing right by their animals. And equally, many are doing very well by them. If people are interested in keeping tarantulas or if people already do keep tarantulas and want to kind of shore up their practice, how would you recommend people kind of look into this, into how to do it right, as it were? Well, the first thing that people are going to do is get on the internet um, and start doing research on the internet. And as much as 
you can absolutely find a lot of extremely valuable information on the internet. The one thing you've got to remember is that it is an unmoderated forum that where people can post whatever they want. And if somebody paints themselves out as being an expert, they can post whatever they like. And a lot of people are going to take what they say as fact, when in fact, it may not be. You need to be sure that you are sourcing your information as responsibly as you can asking questions in you know forums and on whatever whether it's twitter or facebook wherever um and trying to get as broad a picture as possible but also back it up with research from you know books that have actually had to go through an editing process where people have actually had to verify the facts that are being printed and it's not just a case of you can write whatever you want and it'll get printed and whatever you know um so just try and be careful and responsible about the information that you're finding. Don't be afraid to ask people like me. If you come upon me on Twitter and, you know, you're thinking about keeping a spider, I am always down to talk about spider care with anybody. If anyone has a question about how to look after a spider, I am 100% there. I will help you however you like. Not everybody feels that way. A lot of people out there are very precious about how they, you know, give out their information and who they talk to. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about somebody who's to, who's who's looking into keeping an animal, an animal that you are supposedly passionate about and very into sort of, you know, looking after properly. I feel personally that it's my responsibility to that animal to make sure that I impart at least a starting point to that person so that they can go out there and be in with a good chance of taking proper care of it. Because at the end of the day, if they don't, it's not them that pays the price, it's the animal. So for me, animal welfare is at the heart of what I do. Fantastic. So I'm always happy to talk about these things. Um, so yeah, the problem with the internet, especially when you're new to all of this, is that there are a lot of people out there who really think very highly of themselves and have absolutely no problem talking down to people who are new and who don't know the same things that they do. So it's very easy to get disheartened and discouraged by a community of people, you know, say on Facebook groups. I absolutely cannot stand Facebook groups because you find a lot of this behavior in there. People who just seem to think that they're absolutely the bee's knees when it comes to this kind of thing. And they are so quick to jump on somebody who's literally only opened their mouth to say, I think I'd like to learn about how to keep tarantulas. And the next thing you know, you've got all these boys running on, you know, well, and girls jumping down their throat like, you don't know anything. Oh, my God, whatever, you know, all of this stuff that is just so off-putting and so embarrassing to read you know it's just like I can see why the internet would be daunting for people who are just starting out but undoubtedly there are a lot of people on there who really know their stuff and who will perhaps steer you in the right direction much better than if you were to go to say your local reptile shop that might not specialize in spiders they might specialize in well reptiles I have seen some pretty dubious advice given by people in those places, you know, who've got the spiders in to make sure that that base is covered, but they don't necessarily make it their business to know everything about how to properly care for them, you know? So, yeah. Is there, I mean, you, you may have said it, not meaning it, you may have kind of stumbled onto it. Is, I mean, in so many things there is, is there a male slant in terms of people doing the wrong things? Um, when what what do you mean in terms of sort of it being a male dominated what i mean is i guess is there a, a tendency for getting macho and getting your ego involved and having your your cool spiders does there is there a tendency towards that being a male trait do you think um yeah but i do equally see it in some of the girls as well you know it's like 
I don't want to get too much into sort of gender politics and everything here because believe me, I could. You see a hell of a lot of mansplaining. If a girl comes into a forum and she's like, oh, I've got this spider, what do I do? You do see a lot of guys puffing out their chests and being all like, oh, we'll show you, you know, and start mansplaining this stuff. And it's like, at no point did she give the impression that she doesn't know what she's doing. She's asked a specific question answer that first you know but then by the other by the on the other hand you know I see a lot of girls who seem to have this kind of I don't know we'll call it a pick me attitude I suppose you know it's like they're posturing for I don't know I guess approval perhaps from the male contingent you know they'll jump on girls who come in who are just who are trying to ask a question or you know they'll be in there and they'll be talking about how I I don't know the same kind of macho stuff but it's coming from a girl and it just seems to be coming from the point of view of somebody who's seeking approval for something you know and it's like it's unnecessary but you this isn't exclusive to spiders you see this everywhere oh, it's every this single is, subculture right? animals. it's every well it's every single culture to be quite honest with you it's just a human thing but you do certainly see quite a lot of it if you're in the wrong parts of the internet now i moved away from facebook last year when the whole coronavirus thing kicked off it just got too much so i deactivated my account and i poured all of my attention into twitter and i have to say that the community on twitter is so much nicer so much more open so much more informative and so much more sort of um I, I guess, friendly than Facebook. Facebook, everybody seemed to have a point to prove. Everybody seemed to be out to outdo the next guy. It was this constant game of one-upmanship and showing off and posturing and aggression and just, you know, really quite unpleasant um, environments to be in. So I kind of bowed out of a lot of the tarantula groups because of that kind of behaviour. Um, but Twitter, I find, is much nicer. You know, it's, you can speak to people on there and not feel like you're about to get flamed out of the room nice. for opening your mouth. You know, oh, great, um, great to hear the so word I flamed find... again. By the way, <laughs> that harks back to my live journal yeah, days, just to show my age a little bit. There. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So, yeah, it's it's one of those things. Like you've you've got to be prepared for a certain amount of that kind of behaviour because you're going to come across it. But if you are if you kind of explore a little bit first and lurk a little bit first and just sort of watch what these places are like to interact with from other people's point of view before you wade in there yourself, you'll get a bit of a better idea of where your people are, if you see what I mean. So you're an artist as well as a as a, an advocate of spiders, and I guess the, that's not an as well as that these two things intersect. I was wondering about, about that intersection, about often people that are into nature and often people that are into animals have a kind of side gig in art or they enjoy art or they kind of they use art as a way to 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 build some kind of connection with nature maybe and I wondered for you how does that how does your interest in art and your interest in science and nature how do those things intersect they're all so closely interwoven with one another one of the things when I was a child, before I got into the sort of science element of, you know, the natural world, it was all very visual. You know, it's like as a as a very small child, I was just absolutely enthralled by the way that animals look and the way that, you know, all of these creatures around us and plants and everything, the way they look. It just the the it's just so mind-blowingly beautiful, you know, the simplest little things, finding a pine cone on the floor or just looking at a flower or something, as cliched as it sounds, you start taking in the details, you can't help but realise just how beautiful everything that the natural world creates truly is. And that, if you are somebody who is a very visual person, as most artists would tell you they are, 
you can't help but be touched by that and you can't help but want to involve yourself in it in some way or other. Now, for me personally, I grew up with an artistic streak. You know, it was something that I always gravitated more towards the arts than things like, you know, academic subjects. Um, although, obviously, biology, that kind of that was the the black sheep of the of academia for me you know most academic subjects I wasn't really that drawn into but like biology and you know the life sciences absolutely I was as far as the arts are concerned I've always been a very creative person making my own clothes sculpting painting drawing fiber arts so working with wool embroidery all of that kind of stuff the jewelry that I make working with metal you know everything I'm very hands-on I'm very creative and I'm very sort of um I don't know. I'd like to make things. So that's, that's just been something that I've always been very into. So, um, it crosses over in as far as the natural world is my primary source of inspiration. Every time I go outside, I see something that I just, I can't help be struck by how beautiful it is. There's a part of me that wants to draw and paint these things to gain a better understanding of what they are. So to look at them up close and to pour over tiny little details as uh, somebody who has an involvement in scientific illustration, I can't stress enough how important that element of it is. There are several times throughout the course of history where artists where artists illustrators scientific illustrators have found details of specimens that the scientists themselves who've asked them to illustrate it had missed just because of the sheer number of hours and hours and days that they spend poring over every tiny little detail to get the rendering that they're working on as accurate as possible so you know things like if you're drawing say a bird the exact number of feathers that make up that wing. You can't, I was about to say you can't wing it, but that would have been terrible. You, you <laughs> can't make it up. You have to, if you are, if you are reproducing something for a scientific, to accompany a scientific text or, you know, to, to be a reference material for somebody, you can't um, use your art artistic interpretation. You have to represent it exactly as it is. So if that bird has 15 of this type of feather, you draw 15 of that type of feather. And when you're drawing the details on the feathers, you have to have a look at exactly how many tiny little striations there are, and exactly where the markings are, and exactly where the hairs are, and you have to try and reproduce that exactly as you see it. So that's when you start to notice details. So if a question comes up later on, you know, when the scientists are sat there talking about something like, oh, well, how come this is able to, this, this bird is, this species and this bird's this species but visually they're exactly the same that's when your illustrator steps in and says yes visually they are exactly the same but this one has four feathers here whereas this one has six you know scientists might not have seen that straight away but then they're not the ones who spent literally 15 days straight pouring over a study skin so it ties in very 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 closely with science like that there's the the scientific illustration element but then there's also just the sheer appreciation of it, you know, and the wanting to immortalize certain things that you've seen that in nature don't last forever. So, you know, obviously everything dies, everything rots, everything decays. Um, everything changes over time, even rocks, you know, they erode and they, they, they become different things over time. So the desire to immortalize things that would otherwise have a shorter lifespan as an artist is very strong. And also the desire to use these things as inspiration to create your own things, you know, like completely make-believe organisms that are inspired by things that you've seen, you know, an element of this creature and then an element of that creature put together to create something completely fantastical. There's so many different sort of facets to what it is to be an artist and what it is to be a scientist and how these things intersect. It would be 
a topic for you know a whole series of podcasts let alone one little section of one you know <laughs> so yeah there's definitely a huge intersection there and I love it your artwork and and would be something that people could could get involved in, in the sense that they can have a look they can buy stuff could you let to let us know maybe where people could go if they want to to see the stuff you do both the artwork your your spider advocacy where can people look up more of your your spider personing well, there's this is this is where I am a multifaceted human being as well. So I have a few different we'll call them personas, I suppose, but they do all kind of come together. So I had a career as an illustrator for several years under the name Tea Cake. So if you were to Google Tea Cake Art, all one word, you would find a whole host of my work as an illustrator spanning the past decade. Um I've taken a bit of a step away from that lately just because I've wanted to focus on science and getting back into, you know, my studies and just generally involving myself more in the natural world and less in the sort of fantastical. So if you wanted to look at older stuff, you can Google tea cake art and you'll find you'll find me there. If you wanted to see what I'm doing now, the best place, bar none, is Twitter. So my handle on Twitter is T underscore Francis. That's T-E-A-F-R-A-N-C-I-S. Um I post everything on there. So whatever I'm making or drawing or photographing or working with, it all goes on Twitter first. Um, on my Twitter, my link in my bio, it's a link tree. Um, if you click on that, it'll bring up several buttons that'll take you to seven di several different places on the internet. So my Etsy shop is on there where you can see and buy my jewelry work. Um, my Instagram, I've got a couple of Instagram links on there. So there's my spider Instagram where you can see all of my macro photography and the spiders that I keep. Um, there's my jewelry Instagram that's on there where you can see photos of that. I also have a Patreon page. If you were to go onto Patreon and search scientific, so that's the word scientific, but it's spelt with T E A instead of T I in the middle. Um, if you were to search scientific on Patreon, you'd find me on there. That's where I post a lot of the more in-depth kind of stuff. So I post a lot of my macro photography, but I also write a bit about on there like care sheets, how to look after certain types of spiders, family profiles, just interesting things that I've observed, just generally a little bit more in-depth kind of involvement in my sort of well no an in-depth look at my involvement with spiders um so there's that you also can sign up to it for a very very small amount of money every month to get free digital downloads and bonus content um but yeah mostly at the moment my my sort of input online is it's largely jewelry and macro photography so if you head to my twitter and you click that link tree thing in my bio you'll see where else you can find me quite easily Fantastic. Well, I'd encourage people to do so because there's some there's some wonderful stuff to take a look at. People might be interested in getting themselves a, a nice pair of kind of earrings to to match their interests in the natural <laughs> world and so on. Um, so I'd encourage everyone to do that. Thank you so much for speaking with me. There's all kinds of stuff we haven't even had a chance to kind of go over because there's just it's such a huge topic. Um, but it thank is. you for for giving me some insight into into your approach to it, into to how you kind of see this world, this world of of spiders and how people intersect with spiders so thank you so much T. thank you so much for having me it has been an absolute pleasure cheers this episode has been a lot about what we deem an appropriate relationship an appropriate approach to spiders or to animals more broadly central i think to t's approach to the spiders she keeps is respect and the consideration of their welfare this i think you'd struggle to fault as an attitude we spoke after we stopped recording about tiger king the TV show which so many of us watched early last year. In that programme, we saw many people who professed to love animals and appeared to have had, at least initially, or on some level, the animal's welfare, happiness and comfort in mind. We also saw 
how the possession of exotic, dangerous animals could become an ego trip, could become a terrible and distorted thing, in which these animals had ultimately suffered as they came to be seen less as living things, and more as an exploitable source from which money and power and self-importance could be obtained. It's easy to see a parallel here. When one has access to an animal which, like it or not, has a dark and sinister reputation, that animal can easily become something to exploit. I saw in speaking to T that there were a lot of contradictions in being someone who admires and cares for spiders. At once, there is the want for people to treat spiders with respect and not to demonise them, and yet part of what makes spiders cool is the fact that they do possess that certain edge. To be unafraid of spiders, to have your dominion over them to a degree, puts you in a powerful position, master of a fearful thing. One can simultaneously hold, I think, the view of spiders as fascinating ancient animals, and also spiders as creatures that possess that certain je ne sais quoi, a certain menace and edge from a cultural point of view. One can simultaneously enjoy the fact that spiders possess this edge and also decry the fact that they do. Here's an ungainly analogy. We can defend death metal to people who think it unmusical and ugly and frightening by highlighting the employment of difficult musical techniques, the virtuosity, the fact that it's something that can unite people. Simultaneously, it's appealing because of its ugliness, because of its unrelenting lack of subtlety and because it gives people something to identify themselves with that is distinct from the mainstream. One can appreciate the spider as a countercultural symbol, and the excitement that comes with mastering that taboo, while simultaneously being mindful of spider welfare, and acknowledging that the spider is an animal deserving of respect, distinct from all that it's come to symbolise. What matters is that when we talk about spiders, we try and move away from viewing them as somehow terrible or deserving of death, and we try to appreciate that animals are worthwhile living things. Spiders are of consequence to the world, and none are evil even if they do very well on a King Diamond album cover and make for quite good monsters in films. Basically, don't smash spiders. It's a nasty, mean-spirited thing to do. And don't use animals to bolster your street cred at their expense. Read a book about spiders. Be aware of their place in the world, their incredible diversity, their fascinating behaviours. Try not to normalise the idea that you need to scream when you see a spider, sat in its web, utterly ignorant to you, busy being a spider and minding its own business. Rubbing in the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton, and thanks again to T. Francis. Get on the web, spider joke, and send me a message. You can email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com, or follow and message me on Instagram or Twitter. On Instagram, it's at grubbinginthefilth, on Twitter, it's at GITF Podcast. Thank you for listening, keep it spidery, 